0: Well, a very warm welcome to everyone to our very first generation podcast of 2021. Um, 2020 was a bit of a year. We started off the year doing recording with our really nice recording equipment. And then by March, we were put onto the Zoom platform. Um, But it's been a blessing in disguise because we've been able to broaden the range of folk we're speaking to and we've been able to go international. We're not going international today. Uh, We are going north to the sunny town of Dingwall in Rossshire, where my guest is Robert McNaughton. Robert, very good morning to you.
1: Good morning to you too, David.
0: It's great to have you here on on the podcast. Um, You know, Generation Podcast is largely about mission Can you tell us just a wee bit about your own story? You've got that lovely North accent. So maybe tell the folk uh, where you're from, what your early years were like. Okay,
1: born in the seaside village of Ballantore up on the the Murray Coast, on the Murray Firth Coast. Came to Dingwall as a two year old, did all my education at Dingwall Academy. Uh, My mother was uh, already a believer. when I was born, she had had uh, Duncan Campbell as her pastor in the thirties in Ballantore and had come to faith through him, so heard a lot about the the awakenings in Lewis that Campbell was involved in later in the late forties, early fifties, raised in some of his stories, uh, went off to university, studied French in St. Andrews uh, in the sixties. Uh, came into contact with a lot of the uh, existentialist writing of that period uh, in, in France, uh, Sartre and Camus and others like that, which was a bit of a shake-up from someone like myself coming from a, a conservative North of Scotland background. Uh, worked quite a bit uh, with OM during my university days, uh, mainly in France, since uh, my studies were in French. Uh, through through OM there and my experiences there and meeting North Africans in, in France, I felt uh, eventually that I was to go to the, the Muslim world and probably start in Morocco as I'd met Moroccans in France. But uh, felt that uh, it wasn't practicable to go as a missionary to France. There were missions uh, to Morocco. There were missions in Morocco. But uh, it had to be undercover, as it were. And so thought I, I would uh, train as a teacher. Did training in Aberdeen and then had a couple of years in in Lewis to uh, get some of the Lewis background, the flavour of Lewis behind me, and that was very profitable. And then uh, eventually set off for Morocco in 1973.
0: Okay, if I can, I mean, so much of that is fascinating. You were raised okay, going out of church, you kind of, your mum was influenced by Duncan Campbell, and then you are thrown into the world of St. Andrews. Now, Scottish evangelicalism in the 50s and 60s was not really known as being rigorously intellectual, it was more perhaps pietistic. I hope I'm not being unfair. Um, Did you find that? The world of St Andrews was in conflict with your upbringing, or did it give another perspective?
1: Well, it, uh, it gave another perspective. We had quite a, uh, an active, radical group within the Christian Union. There, um, a young group—one uh, from a Methodist background, one from a Pentecostal background, one from a Brethren—and. Uh, and myself from from a Presbyterian background, who formed a little bit of a group and I think uh, were inspired by Operation Mobilization that were just coming online in those days. Operation Mobilization had appeared in Europe in 1962, and we went over there to Europe with them in 1964. Um, One of the other impacts that uh, it had on me there was... um, our geography lecturer in St Andrews was a good friend of Francis Schaefer, who was uh, working in La in Switzerland at the time. And uh, Schaefer came to give a talk to us one evening in John Patterson's house, and his subject was religion of content and no content, and it just went right over my head. But it was uh, it was to prove very useful thereafter in my studies in French existentialist literature. Um, uh, in my third year at St. Andrews, I, I went off to do uh, a third term in the University of Grenoble in France, which was required in those days for someone majoring in French. And uh, that was a bit of a crisis time for me spiritually, but it made me realize uh, that uh, the Bible was ahead of its time with existentialism, especially the books of Job and Ecclesiastes and uh, it was. It was. Uh, so when I came back in my fourth year, I was much more uh, aware of what Schaefer had been talking about. Much more aware of the of the realities of the existentialist uh, take on things and uh, how biblical they were after the fact in many ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, during the summer in the middle of the pandemic, I read Camus' famous book, The Plague, because you kind of, you know, had to, I I really thought it was a, a wonderful book, because in many ways the existentialists got so far, didn't they, in describing the human condition, and yet, you know, it seems to me that God is screaming out of every page, and they don't see it. Did you have a similar experience with the existentialist writing? Well, Camus was much more sympathetic than
1: Sartre was. Sartre was very, very much atheistic. Um, but it's right, yes. I thought the existentialists were much more realistic than the humanists, the modernists, in their assessment of human nature. They were, uh, they were pessimistic. If, if the world was cut off from God, if there was no supernatural, then, what, what? What meaning was there in life? You know, we were born into life as a blank slate, and experiences just brought themselves upon us. And so it was. Yeah, it was. It was uh, much more realistic than the, the the humanists and and many of the what we would call the new atheists of our own day, who want to still hang on to meaning, even although there is no longer any basis for meaning. If if God is dead, as nature would have claimed.
0: No. Uh, the, 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 again, this is fascinating. I mean, I was born in 1961, so I'm a little bit behind you, but you know, I became a Christian in the 70s. Again, influenced a lot by Schaefer. Um, coming from a Highland Free Church background, I really didn't have a very well developed worldview. Uh, Schaefer helped form that in me. What interests me is that you combine this. Intellectual awakening with what the old folk rightly called a burden for souls. How did that come about? Um, As I say, we'd been
1: uh, particularly the son of a Methodist minister down in Lancashire, Peter Mackenzie, was one of our group in. In university, and he was the one who got us involved with OM. He had his a, a, antenna well tuned to some of these movements, and in um, so there was already a burden there through through earlier contact with the WEC mission mission through my through my mother's interests. But um, in France, on one of our forays in France. I spent a year in France as well as shorter periods with OM from 1968 to 1969. I was with them there and we were down in Lourdes, the Catholic center in the, in the Pyrenees, the Oriental Pyrenees in France near the Spanish border. And coming back from there for our, we were on a traveling team and we would come back to Paris at the end of each month to be reassigned to a different part of the country. And on that particular occasion coming back, we picked up a young hitchhiker. Uh, and he turned out to be Moroccan, and he wondered what this group of foreigners were doing, wandering around in an old uh, minivan. And uh, he, he became very interested in that trip up towards uh, Paris for our monthly get-together with the other teams. And uh, he actually came to faith uh, while he was up there in Paris, not while I was there, but uh, because we were already somewhere else. So while I was studying up in Lewis, I uh, already feeling a burden for the Muslim world. Uh, I went down to Morocco for, for a month between my first year and second year in Lewis to meet Mustafa. This was the young man and found him in prison, not for his faith, but for some other, some other issue. But uh, so that, that uh, nailed Morocco for me.
0: Okay, so can you describe when you went to Morocco at first? What was the church landscape like? Um, my,
1: my my feeling was to go to Morocco very much as I had been in Lewis to be uh, as much as I could part of whatever church there was there, but while at the same time holding down my my job in, in, as a English language teacher in a private language school there. Uh, I, I'd been put in touch with some of the mission community the year before when I'd gone for a month to reconnoiter the country. And uh, I was basically, there were about maybe 100 Moroccans at that time. This was in 1973 who would be known or willing to be known as Christians. There were others around them who uh, would, would, would go to meetings but might not have been, had any commitment. Uh, I had, uh, we, I, I attended both a mixed group of families uh, in the home of uh, some missionaries there. And then a, a group of young men, I got together with a group of young men in in the home of the Anglican pastor there who was uh, for the foreign community in the country at that time.
0: Okay, so there was just over a hundred believers then. Uh, In your time in Morocco and observing Morocco, I've heard you speak of you being a witness, or a bystander uh, about what God was doing. Tell us what you saw. Well, at that time, I was
1: more, I think, proactive. Uh, It was just gradually over the years we we came to realize that we were more there to be witnesses in the sense of just seeing what God was doing and being being in awe of it. Um, I I got together quite a lot with these young men and various uh, individuals among the young men. but. Casablanca was quite a a scene at the time. Uh, It was after the 60s in the West, and uh, now it was the time of the world travelers. Um, And places like Samarkand and Kathmandu and Marrakesh were these faraway places with strange-sounding names were attracting the young ex-hippies of the 60s to travel the world in search of drugs. And uh, I, I got a flat w- along with another young man who had been in Brazil, uh, lived with him for a year there in our flat, and I ha- hadn't realized at the time that he, it was only a year later that he told me he was a paedophile, and he decided to move out and go and live with some young gay men who were in the, in the same area. But uh, people would come in there, and Moroccans and uh, foreign travelers would make their way through our apartment. I was regarded as a, a strange bit of an oddity there, uh, um, because they would be coming to smoke hashish, and, or kief, as they called it there. And uh, we had quite a, an atmospheric flat. Uh, we were in the seventh floor of a, a building on one of the main boulevards of uh, Casablanca. But uh, they put up with me, and there were many good opportunities, even with a foreign community there, to interact and, and, and witness. But uh, also, uh, we had an ashram set up not far from us. The Guru Maharaji was uh, big at the time. And then another young man whom I had met at the pastor's meeting wanted to have individual Bible studies with me. And we'd been speaking for, together for, Quite a while on a Saturday before I realised there was something strange about the questions he was asking me. Did I think Jesus had failed because he had never got married, etc.? And it eventually struck me that this was a follower of Sun Myung Moon, and uh, he was a Moroccan, but a follower of Sun Myung Moon. Whereas the followers of the Guru Maharaji who wanted me to meditate with them were were foreigners. And uh, so it was. It was a. <laughs> It was a very uh, lively scene. And I remember one time uh, the Sun Myung Moon lad came to see me at work and wanted to, he said he had two of his colleagues coming from the States on their way to Turkey and could uh, could they come and see me? And first I was a bit busy, but I thought, why not? And I said, well, can I invite others? And he said, sure, that would be great. So I invited the four members of the Maharaji Ashram and not telling them who was coming, and so when the, the Maharajis and, uh, and the Sun Myung Moonites arrived, they had a conversation with me, and I said, well, some of you have been telling me that Sun Myung Moon is the messiah of the 20th century, and the others are telling me that uh, uh, Sun Myung Moon is the messiah of the 20th century. If, if Maharaji is the messiah of the 20th century, who in heaven, earth, or hell is Sun San Myung Moon? And if Sun Myung Moon is uh, the, ma- the messiah of the 20th century, who in heaven, earth or hell is the Guru Maharaji. And they just sat looking at each other for a while. And then they ganged up on me and they said, well, why can't
0: there be two messiahs in the 20th century? So anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you're in this atmosphere in Casablanca, you're in that atmospheric environment in many senses of, of that word uh, what do you think equipped uh, equipped you uh, to discuss I mean were you were you studying apologetics uh, were you well versed in the Bible um, what was your strategy
1: I, I knew I knew my Bible pretty well that's what had happened to me when I'd been in, in France I was reading I always I'd met uh, a man called uh, Ralph Chalice, during my uh, O.M. time, and he had, got, uh, he had encouraged me. He would read through the Bible every year, three chapters a day. But he got me encouraged in reading right through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and then going back to the beginning again. So I would read it, and that's how I happened to be in Job when I was going through this crisis of faith in, in Grenoble. And uh, coming across Job saying in chapter twenty-three, Oh, that I knew where I might find him! And then at the end of Job saying, uh, I had heard of you by reputation, but now I see you with my own eyes, and I'm in the dust and ashes. And, uh, and then getting into Ecclesiastes, and these were these were great books to understand the present generation. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless if if we're cut adrift from God. So. And and then, but on the other hand, as I say, I read Schaefer after having met Schaefer and, and uh, enjoyed Schaefer a lot. I I never did uh, any formal theological training, but I, I uh, was very much into uh, Samuel Rutherford and John Owen in uh, in my university days, uh, and I, I think uh, one of the most. Seminal books in, in in my life was Rutherford's *The Trial and Triumph of Faith*, which which is twenty-seven sermons on the on the incident of the side of an Asian woman who comes to Jesus to ask her, him to to heal her daughter. So, and, and being in Lewis, you know, two years in Lewis was tremendous as well, just to to hear more stories of. Uh, and, and I think that was very, very important uh, subsequently, not so much in Casablanca, but subsequently when we moved further inland in Morocco. It was a great uh, anchor and, and, and uh, foundation for me.
0: Okay, you, you mentioned the uh, books there. Part of your life was in the book world, wasn't it? Tell us about that. Well, after two years in Casablanca...
1: Uh, Friends of ours who were uh, running what what had been a missionary bookstore up in the city of Fez, one of the older imperial, ancient imperial cities of Morocco, um, called the Pearl of Islam, actually, Fez. They had a bookshop there. Their three children were in Britain and their son, the younger of the three at school there, was having problems. So they were having to shuttle back and forth between Morocco and Britain to address these problems. And uh, at that point, the local university of Fez had opened its English department. And because they already had accounts with publishers like Penguin and Pan and Oxford and Macmillan, and all the British and American publishers, um, they were the only bookshop set up to supply textbooks for the students at the university. And so I I felt that I should go up there, thinking that I could quite quickly get a job in a secondary school there with my English teaching background, my my degree in French. Uh, But that proved to be difficult because uh, most Moroccans, although there were vacancies in the English schools up in Fez, Uh, most of the Moroccans and and indeed the the headmasters and headmistresses would have been delighted to have me as a native speaker. It was a place that many Moroccans wanted to go and teach in. And so they got priority. The the government were happy to send me off into the boonies into more remote parts of the country. But I said, no, I've got to be in Fez to help these friends. So for a year and a half, I I taught at uh, the American language center in the evenings to get some money and spent most of my days in the bookshop, helping uh, the owners out. They had a young uh, Moroccan there. And so I acquired quite a lot of uh, background and experience in in running a bookshop. And then in early 1977, uh, two teachers, became unavailable at the university. One was an American who hadn't been paid and decided just to throw it in. The other was a French lady who was expecting a baby, and there were suddenly two teachers short. And the dean of the university said, well, uh, you'll have to just teach extra hours to the other teachers. And they said, no. They said, you've got other teachers in town. There's a man down at at the Oasis bookshop which was a little bit suspect to the university because of its Christian background. But he, they came and asked me to, to do three months at the university. And if they liked me and I like them, then there's the possibility of a permanent uh, contract. And that's how it turned out. Uh,
0: so, yeah. so I've taken on the university in 77 full time. Yeah, I'm going to split that this conversation into two. Um, going back a little bit in, in the book thing, you mentioned Rutherford Owen Schaefer. You read old stuff. You read new stuff. Have you continued to be a reader? Yeah, I, I still like reading, David, yeah. Yeah, and do you think books are still important in a multimedia world? Uh, not an authority on that, I'm afraid. Well, um, I, th- I think you, I, I think you there personally. People, there are people
1: yeah. around me who do read, who do read a lot, and, and uh, find it. That, you know, they don't want to be on the screen all the time, and uh, there's a a certain uh, pleasure in curling up with a book, I suppose, on the bed or in a chair, an armchair, and <clears throat> getting
0: lost in another world. <laughs> okay, and. The other half of of the split is. And so you're a Christian, you're working internationally, you're not an official missionary. Um are the pros and cons of that? I mean probably even if you're described a tent maker is going a a step too far, but can you just outline what the pros and cons of sort of being a formal professional missionary and just being a believer living in an international context? Um, <clears throat> well, the practicalities
1: of it were, for, for, for me, really, was a sense of identity, uh, of not uh, having a hidden identity in that respect. If people asked me, what are you doing here? A, a lot of those who had to go with mission would have to get... Um, a, they might have got a bit of teaching in, they might have been nursing, but... Uh, But then their careers, they didn't didn't actually want to be doing these things. They wanted to be doing more specifically evangelistic work. uh, And that's what they felt called to. But they couldn't say that to people. They couldn't say that that was why they were in the country. Uh, I think as a professional, you were meeting people that uh, most of the missionaries wouldn't have an opportunity to meet. My colleagues at the university, my students, uh, I mean, I would be standing up at times in front of 700 students in the amphitheater or 250 students at a time or working with them in the laboratories, meeting them in the bookshop as a teacher. And I had a profile there that the the Moroccans themselves who were believers felt more comfortable relating to. Uh, They might be asked about other people in the country, what, what they were up to or that, but my profile in the country was quite clear to everybody concerned Uh, and yet at the same time uh, I had very good fellowship with all the mission missionaries in the country and they reached out to me and I I was available to them in fact in fact when I was in Fez uh, a couple uh, four four folks arrived at our door one time and two of them were from the world center of missions in Pasadena and uh Tim, Tim Lewis became our neighbor in Morocco back in 1980. He, the house next to us became, or the flat next to us and, and where we were staying became vacant and, and they moved in. And we had many conversations about this, about uh, he was interested in what he called non-mission or or unmission, and wanted to get a bit of my experience on this as we're talking about at the moment. And he eventually went on with Greg Livingstone to found or to uh, to create the Frontiers mission. That was the beginning of the Frontiers, who are now very instrumental in sending teams out into what they call the 2040 window, the the Islamic world, the unreached uh, people groups of the Islamic world. Uh, Yeah, they've become more of a mission. They've become more of a mission now, but uh, I remember at the time the leader of the AWM, the Arab World Ministries, Abe Weeb, sharing his frustrations and concerns with me that Greg Livingstone had been recruiting for them and, and recruiting more people, more young people than they could cope with because the process of getting out onto the mission field with some of these groups was quite a long, protracted process. And I'd suggested to Abe at the time, look, just tell anyone who is interested, get out there, live there for a year, prove that you can take the culture and the life without too much infrastructure around you, and then come back to us and say, look, we've been out and proved ourselves out in the field that we can survive there like many non-Christians do, the world travelers. Uh, are you interested in having us as part of your,
0: your mission? Now. You mentioned uh, the Islamic world there and you went to Morocco. I mean, in the last oh, 30 years, Islam and the shape of Islam has changed as much more in your face, radicalism and confidence. What would you describe as being the, the seismic shifts in the Islamic world?
1: Well, uh, uh, as I mentioned to you, we'd, we had um, done, we worked a bit in the bookshop and then another university up on the border with Morocco and Algeria uh, had just opened an English department and students were coming down to Fez about 250 miles to get their textbooks. And uh, an American couple who had also come to Fez and were looking for a way to be in the country, but had no, as it were, marketable skills to be there, uh, were willing to put up the money for us to set up a bookshop up in Ujda. And uh, that was on the Algeria, about five miles from the Algerian border. And we moved up there in the summer of 1982. And it was just three years after the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran had overthrown the Shah. And that, was, that had an incredible impact across the Islamic world. Here was a, a profoundly Islamic ayatollah, who had been in exile in France and had now gone back to Iran, had overthrown what was seen as a Western puppet, and it gave a tremendous impetus to many other uh, groups. Uh, already the, the Palestinian Liberation Org- Organization was on the go, of course, but Uh, struggling a bit Uh, and when we got to Ujda we were suddenly confronted with a very conservative much more conservative even than Fez and certainly more conservative than Casablanca a city where many many young people were going to the mosque and the girls were putting on their their hijabs their, their scarves covering their heads and um up until that time a lot of the radicals in the universities had been marxist leninists of all things and especially inspired by a socialist regime across the border in in algeria and but in, by the 19 the early 1980s there was quite a, a strong islamic faction so we were confronted in the universities with this co- often confrontational Uh, situation between the Islamic students and the Marxist-Leninist students. And uh, my lectures up in Ujda, because I'd been transferred up to Ujda University by this time, I'd asked to go there. Uh, You would would be, during your lecture, you would suddenly hear this whistling and chanting, and there would be students marching out in the on the campus and they would come knocking at your window and all your students would get up and walk out to join this demonstration. And uh, so I think that year, which would have normally been a teaching year of of 30 weeks, we had only 13 weeks of teaching because of the interruptions from these demonstrations. Uh,
0: Can you maybe share a bit of your experience. That if you met a Muslim guy in a coffee shop or, or something, began to form a relationship, have you any sense of the best way um, in which to witness to Muslims? It, it, was, it, it was very, very different.
1: Yeah. Almost every situation was, was unique. Um, after I had been in Fez for about uh, three months, six months, my uh, residence ran out and I had no employment at that point. I had not yet begun to work in the American Language Center. So I went over to, uh, to Malaga to stay for a few weeks with friends over there. They were. Ex-missionaries to Morocco who had been expelled in 1969, and they were now they now set up a Bible school, uh, well, a Bible ministry. They would broadcast in Moroccan Arabic into Morocco, and they also sent out Bible correspondence courses. And they said to me, "When you go back to Morocco, uh, can you take this list of about 80 uh, contacts that we've had from from Bible courses, Bible correspondence courses?" Uh, and I did so, and I wrote to all 80 of those saying, I have been over in Malaga, uh, I met your friends over there. I said nothing incriminating in the letters, uh, but uh, and they suggested that I might like to see you and give you news of them when you were in Morocco. So I had about 35 responses to these. I'm sure quite a number of them had, were old and people no longer interested. But I met up with about 35 of those 80 who already had a basis of having read the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, and since I wasn't employed and wasn't earning at that point very much, they, they, quite a few of them uh, felt I was more on their level. They, they were young men, most of them, and uh, met some very interesting characters there. Uh, In fact, one time you're asking about cafes. Uh, One time I'd suggested to one of them that we meet up in a cafe. So I went to the cafe and it was a little bit exposed in the corner. And this young man turned up. I said, Greece, And he said, yes. And uh, he said, I'm not very comfortable here. Can we go to another cafe? So we went to another cafe up the stairs into a room upstairs, a little bit dingy and some people playing cards at another table, and we talked for about an hour, and uh, he wanted to know all that was happening and then he said to me he said now i don't want to shock you um, but i'm not Greece and I, I, my first uh, thing was that he was a police plant that had uh, come to come to suss me out, but he said no no don't worry he said i'm greece's friend, but Greece didn't know that you were going to you know who you were going to be, and he didn't know what kind of what you were setting him up for, but he said, "I'll tell Dries and hopefully he'll 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 meet you some other time." So these are the kind, some of those kinds of experiences. But uh,
0: so yeah, so so your initial contact with with Muslims is uh, maybe you know to find some common ground. There you were talking about Luke's Gospel, the NGO as, you know, the Muslims would call it, rather than, you know, going in and attacking core Islamic beliefs and values. Yeah. I mean, some people do that
1: outside of the country uh, and do it very effectively. I mean, David Woods and and, uh, Jay Smith do that very effectively at the moment. David in the States and Jay, I think, more in, in Britain with the Fander Institute. Moroccan Christians were divided on that: uh, whether you took a confrontational uh, stance with them of attacking Islam, or whether you just spoke positively about the gospel. And uh, my 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 tendency tended to be to be the latter.
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah. I've just finished uh, Nabio Karashi's uh book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Um, if anybody wants to know about Islam, it's a very interesting thing. I'm um, just also finished Richard Schumach, uh, a recent book, Jesus Through Muslim Eyes. So, you know, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. So someone described recently as, you know, when you're talking to a Muslim and you go in full guns blazing, they say, you know, a Muslim person is like uh a compound surrounded by trip wires that will set off machine guns and searchlights, and you know the attack on the prophet is one of those trip wires, and you wouldn't get very far
1: oh. yeah. I think one of the things that uh, that hit me quite early on david in in being over there was that uh muslims or 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 Arabs and Muslims are, are almost as diverse as we are here in the West, uh, and you, you're never quite sure what uh, what you're going to find. There will be there will be among them those who are atheists out and out, although they they still uh, will follow Ramadan. They'll do the fasting of Ramadan, etc., because it's uh, obligatory. Um, but uh, when when I was lecturing up in Ujda. Uh, now, the, well, even there to give you to to give you uh, a, a sense of this, the dean at the time said to me, "Mr. McNaughton, he wasn't from there. He was much less conservative." And he said to me, uh, at, uh, "After a while, he said, Mr. McNaughton, just to give you some advice, don't trust any of those lecturers in the Islamic Studies Department further than you can throw them.'" And this was amazing to me, coming from him. And I said, "What?" what's happening and he said well as the dean i'm invited to go and to these gatherings with the, with the governor of the city and the great and the good of the city and he said i seldom go there but somebody comes up to me and says why do you keep that fellow McNaughton at the university uh, and uh, i said well what are they accusing me of he said they're accusing you of having you know long conversations with people in town and I couldn't think of any long conversations I'd had because when we went to Ujda, and I think that this was one of the, the evolutions that was taking place within ourselves, uh, David, in, in Casablanca and Fez, I had been operating more in terms of my Western experience. And going up to Ujda, we felt that we didn't want to take any initiative at all in outreach, but wait to see what God himself was going to be doing in that city. And yet for the first three years of our time in Ujda, we had an opposition like we'd never had it before. I mean, our little boy came in one day and he said uh, he'd been out playing with his friends in the dirt outside our flat. And he was only three or four at the time. And he said, Daddy, why are, why are my friends saying that we've come to Ujda to destroy their city? <laughs> and we were doing nothing there. We, were taking, no, we weren't doing any Bible studies. We weren't doing any outreach for that first three years of our six years in Usta, we were doing absolutely uh, keeping it just a a normal low profile. And uh, one time I was coming home from the university and this young man fell into step beside me. And uh, he wanted to uh, do Bible studies with me, which I found was very strange that somebody would come up to you in the street in that way. And I said, I- I'm sorry, I don't do uh, bri- private Bible studies with people, but you can ch- tune into uh, the broadcasts from Malaga in Spain or Marseille in France about the Bible. No, he said, I would like to do do it with you personally. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not into that, uh, which Went against the grain in some ways with me, but that was my, my hunch. And Now, I would, I would pay a rent to this streetwise rogue of a character who had a little office in our a set of apartment blocks there in, in, in Usta. And we got on very well, and I'd even talked with them. They were putting the apartments up for sale, and I'd, we'd talked a little about it. But I was in with him one day later, and I was speaking with him, and he was facing me, and I was facing him. My back was to the door. And we were chatting about something. I don't know what we were chatting about, but suddenly, totally out of context, he said, no, Robert. He said, the company have got no uh, plans to sell these buildings at the moment. And I didn't know why he'd changed the conversation so quickly and radically, but then I sensed that somebody had come into the office behind me. And it was a young man from the previous week or two weeks previously who had asked to do Bible studies with me. And he came round to face me. And he, so both he and Mohammed, the rent taker, were facing me and Mohammed was behind him. And as I spoke to this young man, Mohammed gave me a big wink behind the young man's shoulder, saying, this is one of those police informers who I've been talking to you about who are following you. So
0: it was, it was quite an interesting scenario. Amazing. Time's rolling on, uh, Robert. What a fascinating conversation. Um, how long have you been back in Scotland now? Ten years. Ten, Ten years. years. Okay, okay. Have you any sense of the spiritual temperature in Scotland now Is Uh, You know, you've lived most of your life outside of Scotland, and now you're back in it. Um, Any sense of what's happening?
1: Well, uh, we've often said since we came back that we felt our 35-odd years in the Islamic world were a preparation for Scotland, (laughs) 2010 to 2020. Uh, It's the children of, of, of existentialism, the children of Nietzsche now, you know, the uh, the Book of Judges, every man does what is right in his own eyes because there is no king in the land uh, they're uh, meaningless meaningless it's all the eye generation and so it's a fascinating on our street of a hundred people there i think there's one other person who might attend a church but uh and yet all very approachable and uh and good opportunities with them. Uh, we 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 when we came back, just after we came back, we we started going to the local youth cafe, which was a lot of uh, young people from dysfunctional families, and the church started um, our own church started something called uh, the Well on a, every Wednesday, where uh, it was a, just like a drop-in, which took two or three years to get going, but then eventually. It became a bit of a, a magnet for uh, the addicts of the town, uh, various uh, alcohol or drugs or even prostitution, uh, shoplifting. And it became a place where they said they they, they felt at home. They, they, they didn't feel judged. They felt uh, uh, at ease, comfortable. And... Uh, so it, these, these two things, which we weren't involved in starting, but these two things uh, being associated with them helped us to really get back into the town and not only into the town, but into what you would call the alternative community in the town so that we have uh, you know, many friends now in, in, in who have been and still are, a lot of them still addicted. But... Uh, visit us when there's no COVID restrictions and we, we, we visited them. We lost four of them this year to death early on in their forties, um, three to, to drugs and one to, to alcohol. Um, so so our, our daily prayer tends to be, you know, Lord, bring into our lives today people who need to hear from us and people from whom we need to hear ourselves mm. and it's it's amazing just uh, the constant ebbing and flowing of people come into our lives and disappear again or come into our lives and reappear after many many a year or many a month
0: Robert thank you so it's a great note in which to end you know and the, the the theme that's coming through is just this: your variety of people who have come across your life, your life since your your teenage years. Uh, clearly, you're rubbing shoulders with exactly the sort of people that Jesus rubbed shoulders with. And I would just encourage our listeners to, as you know, Becky Manley pippert says, get out of the salt shaker and mm-hmm. just speak to people. It's, it's really not rocket science, is it? You know, it's spreading the gospel is just talking to people about Jesus. Well,
1: yes, honestly, we wouldn't have wanted any other life, uh, David. It's been a wonderful life, really.
0: Well, thank you so much. And, generation listeners, thank you for joining us again in 2021. We hope to serve you during this year with a number of guests. Hopefully, get maybe more presenters on. You don't want to hear my voice. Every single week. So we're looking at that. So thanks for joining us and a big blessing for this new year. Thank you.